alluded to, we are starting a new series today, just a two-week series, but really it's going to be carrying forward for a long time here at Cornerstone. It's kind of, it's the, the title of the series is the same title that every church in America is going to steal this year. I stole it from somewhere else, but 2020 Vision, looking at what is our vision for Cornerstone, as David said, the leadership, what have we kind of learned from God and, and heard from God and, and hopefully been able to dispel and, and uh, not spell, disperse, <laughs> that's the word I was looking for there, and get out to our, the congregation as we move forward. Before we start into the actual series, I have a couple of sort of pop quiz questions for you. First of all, these are all space related, so if you're into that kind of thing, which nation was the first to launch a satellite into orbit? I, I see a hand, I heard some, Soviet Union, right? Right, Soviet Union. Before Russia, I know, I get it, like, I know what you meant there. So yeah, Soviet Union. So October 4th, 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik as a satellite, a little bit bigger than a basketball, that's all it was. It was sent up by a rocket and then released and, and then orbited the earth. And no, I was not alive at that time. Um, I, don't, I don't remember it. Um, it does remind me of a time, though, we were in Washington, D.C. with our kids, and we were outside Ford's Theater, and one of my kids, I don't remember which one, so I won't blame one of them, but one of them said, were you sad when President Lincoln got shot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was. So, yeah, that was horrible. So, all right, second question, which nation was the first to put a human into orbit? I heard United States... I think I heard Soviet Union. Somebody say Soviet Union. Just wave if you did. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yes, Soviet Union. Very good. Same answer. Yuri Gagarin, April 12, 1961, was the first human to orbit the Earth. Two more questions. Which nation was the first to reach the moon? Anybody not say United States? Who do you have? Soviet Union. Very good. Absolutely correct. That one probably tricked you. It tricked me, actually. Dece- uh, excuse me, September 12, 1959, a lunar probe was launched from the Soviet Union. It transmitted back to Earth throughout its mission, and it hit the moon on September 13th. So it was an intentional crash into the moon, but they reached the moon first. Here in the United States, Alan Shepard became the first American in space on May 5th, 1961, but he didn't even orbit one time around the Earth. He launched from Cape Canaveral in Florida. He went to an altitude of only 116 miles above the Earth, and he landed in the ocean 15 minutes later, only 190 miles away. Now, that was the plan. The plan it didn't fail, but that was the plan. Just get him up, say he was in space, and then, and then come back down in the ocean. So the Soviet Union reached the moon before the United States even put a man in space. That's incredible. And another thing you don't often hear about is how many soft landings have occurred on the moon. In 1966, three years before Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, the Soviet Union landed an unmanned craft on the moon safely that sent pictures back to the Earth. It was the first pictures ever taken from the lunar surface. That's amazing. That's just history you don't often hear about. So last question. If somebody gets this, I'm gonna, I will give you $50. I will give you $50. <laughs> How, 
How many times has a man-made object from Earth either landed safely, crashed intentionally, or crashed unintentionally on the surface of the moon? In other words, how many different spacecraft have touched the moon's surface? 120-something I heard over here? 10, I heard? 127? No one's really even that close. It was 49. Oh, I know. That could have had 50 bucks. I, would, I did not know this. 49 times something from Earth has touched the moon. Again, some of them crashed. It wasn't intentional, but still. The first was in September 1959, as I mentioned. And the last one was just last year in July, 2019. India sent, sent one up there. So, Alan Shepard from the United States finally reached space on May 5th, 1961, after the Soviet Union had even been to the moon. Just 20 days later, President John F. Kennedy gave a speech to Congress, and he said this, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. Just three weeks before, we had sent a guy 190 miles. And he said, we're going to the moon in the next eight and a half years. Even many people at NASA were surprised by the announcement. They heard the speech and they, they were floored. They didn't know this was coming. So less than three weeks after we put a man in suborbital space for 15 minutes, JFK said, we're going to the moon. He gave us one goal. It was bold and audacious. He didn't list every incremental step to get there. He didn't talk about what it would take to build a descent rocket for the landing. He didn't talk about how to design the spacesuits. He didn't mention anything about needing a six million pound crawler to take the rockets from the assembly building to the launch pad. He didn't mention any of that stuff. He, he gave us one goal. He knew all the steps that we need to get there would be figured out in time. But he gave one goal so that everyone, all 400,000 people from 20,000 different institutions and universities that worked on the Apollo program, one goal so that all of them would know when we achieved success. That was the mark. Success is only getting to the moon and back. And he finished that part of that speech with this. He said, in a very real sense, it will not be one man going to the moon. It will be an entire nation for all of us must work to put him there. So I want to use this sermon series to illustrate some things about how this happened and what's going on and how we're going to use this going forward with our new strategic initiative. So let's just take a look at kind of a graphic that kind of explains what was going on sort of simultaneously as we go to the moon or as we go anywhere in space. Of course, you know, the, the rocket, the Saturn V rocket in that case was just basically a tube of fuel. 360 feet tall, so longer than a football field with the end zones, just full of fuel. It weighed 6.2 million pounds, and it burned, get this, 20 tons of fuel per second. The Saturn V rocket was made up of 3 million parts, but none of them would have mattered at all if the fuel couldn't get the rocket up to a speed of almost 23,000 miles per hour. Just unfathomable how fast that much weight had to go. 
The second, of course, very important part of it is the astronauts sitting in that little tiny capsule at the very top. They trained for years. But even with all of that training, all of that experience, all of the troubleshooting and, and throwing problems at them just to see if they could solve them, much of what the astronauts did was push buttons and turn dials that they were told to do. Instructions came up from NASA and they pushed a button or they turned a dial or they flipped a switch. They took their lead from others. Now, I'm not diminishing what the astronauts did. I'm not saying anybody could just do that, but a lot of their instruction came from others. The objective was the moon. The objective was the moon. That was clear. Getting there and landing safely was clearly part of the goal. And then we come back down to Earth and we think about mission control and Houston and what goes on there. And that big, huge screen in the front that you always see whenever you watch anything having to do with space, uh, spacecraft launching or anything like that. I thought it'd have a really cool, fancy name. I was looking for like this, you know, really cool name. It's called the group display. <laughs> I, I don't, they must have had someone like me figuring out how to name things because that's not a very cool name. But this huge screen in front of the room just by looking at it, everyone in the room, and in fact, everyone that's not even trained, like us, can see if the mission is going as planned. It was the best gauge and still is the best gauge for a quick overview of success because it just took all that information that was coming from all these inputs in the room and it just synthesized them into one easy-to-read format. And then, of course, we have mission control. The scientists, engineers, and doctors of mission control each had their own specialty. The flight surgeon has no idea how to co control the navigation systems. The people who designed the lunar lander had no idea how to keep the spacesuits cooled. Everyone had to do their job absolutely perfectly. From the most public face of mission control, who was probably the flight director, to the guy who sat in the corner by himself confirming calculations on his slide rule. Any single person had and has the authority to call off a launch if something goes wrong, if something goes, as not, as unex, goes unexpectedly. Every single person's work at their station contributes to the overall picture of the mission that was going on on the group display. If one person made a mistake, it was all over. If one person said, we can't go, they didn't go. And then finally, of course, we have when the mission is accomplished. Success, as defined by JFK, was not reaching the moon. That would have been a great thing to happen. But that had already been done, just not with people. Success, as he defined it, was reaching the moon and getting back safely to Earth. The moon was just an objective that had to be reached on the way to total success. It was a marker, but not the end goal. Jesus did a very similar thing when he gave us our orders as believers. There are at least five different occasions when Jesus gave all of his followers instructions about what we are supposed to be doing here on Earth. He didn't give all the details, he didn't give all the methods and challenges and strategies that we, that we need to look at. He just said, make disciples. Make disciples. That's it. 
So how did we know if we achieved JFK's goal? When we got to the moon and back. How will we know when we achieve the goal that Jesus has? When we make disciples. The most quoted version of this great commission, as it's called, comes from Matthew chapter 28, but there's others as well. Acts 1, there's, there's one in Mark, there's other places too. But sometime in the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension into heaven, Jesus gave the disciples the one goal that he had in mind for them and for us. So let's look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, as you read that, you might think, well, there's actually several commands in there. There's several instructions, it seems like, that are in it. It says go, it says teach, it says baptize, it says make disciples. And you'd be correct in the English translation, but unfortunately, this is one of those times when the English translation just doesn't quite capture the meaning the way that it should. And I'm no expert. I'm just going on what other people have said and, and what I remember learning years ago. But it might seem like a minor detail, but actually the way this should be read is more like this. Here's a little bit of a paraphrase. While you are going, while you are baptizing, and while you are teaching, make disciples. There's only one command in that, in that whole great commission. Make disciples. The baptizing, the teaching, and all those things, those are methods, those are strategies, those are ways to do it. The one command is make disciples. JFK said, we will be successful when we send a man to the moon and return him back safely. NASA said, we'll do it after we do research on the best fuels and send up a bunch of test flights and design a lander and achieve just a million other milestones. Then we can do it. And Jesus said, you'll be successful when you make disciples of all nations. And you'll do it by going and baptizing and teaching and so on. The mission statement for Cornerstone, you've probably heard it if you've been here more than a week, says that we exist to invite people on a journey to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. In short, we will make disciples. We will make disciples. At the core, that is to be the mission of every church everywhere. And it's been ours since day one of our existence. Well, over the past year, the overseers and other leaders of Cornerstone have been evaluating our level of success with the mission statement. We've asked many people for input. We've had workshops. We've prayed. We've discussed and we've assessed and we've done all kinds of things to find out how we're doing. We want to always make sure, part of the job of the overseers and other leaders, we want to always make sure that we are pointing in the right direction as an organization to accomplish the purpose that Jesus has for us. So through this work, we've been able to come to some conclusions about our strategic direction. And before I unveil it, let me ask you just a couple of questions just for personal reflection, just some things to think about, some questions that we asked ourselves and that we were thinking about asking others as well. <clears throat> First question, what is your personal devotional life typically like? Do you have regular times with God or is it maybe sporadic? Maybe it's non-existent. Next, how do you personally understand and experience the gospel? 
just in your day-to-day living, how does the gospel impact you? How do you feel the gospel when you're going about your life? Third, think about your Sunday, mo- <clears throat> excuse me, Sunday mornings. How often do you truly get to experience or feel the gospel? Do you ever become overwhelmed by God's grace? Are you ever moved to emotion because of his great love? And we were singing about just a little bit ago how great he loves us in Psalm 121, how amazing his love is. Or does Sunday morning usually just kind of end up being another day on the, on the calendar that you just happen to do something that most people don't do by going to church? And then last question, when is the last time you were broken over sin? Not because you got caught or you were upset about it, but you were broken because of what it did to Jesus. In other words, are you ever bothered by the fact that your sin, my sin, was part of what sent Jesus to the cross? Are you ever broken over that? I think if we're all honest with ourselves, our faith can sometimes be stale. I know that happens to me way more than I wish it would. The reality is we live in a time and a place in this country at this time in history when we don't always feel the need for God in our lives. Everything we need is easily attainable. We don't live in a place where we are almost forced to rely on God for everything. I mean, everywhere we look, there's food, there's water, there's shelter, there's medical care. We don't fear persecution. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. We need God, but we don't need God here like millions of other people need God around the world. You follow me there, what I'm saying? So we can go into autopilot. I get it. It happens. It happens to all of us. We go into autopilot, we get stale, and we stop allowing ourselves to grow and to be challenged by the gospel. So part of what we're trying to do as leaders is trying to combat that tendency, which is true in all of us. We are trying to make disciples and make sure Cornerstone is making disciples. What is a disciple? Just really quickly. A, a disciple is more than an apprentice or an intern. That's, those are important things. But a, an apprentice or, a, or an intern, they, they master a trade or a subject or a, a, a job. They, they get really good at it, and that's certainly important. But that means they kind of compartmentalize their lives, and that part of their lives they work on really hard, and they do really well, and they ex- excel at it but the rest of their lives don't really matter in terms of the internship or the apprenticeship. When you're a disciple, it's everything about your life. A disciple doesn't just teach that he, what he taught, what Jesus taught, or worship who he worshiped. A disciple's goal is to emulate every aspect of the teacher's life. So a disciple of Jesus works to emulate every part of Jesus' life. You live out the teachings of Jesus in every aspect of life, not just one compartmentalized section. So what is our strategy? What am I finally getting at in all of this? How are we going to do that? Well, as a church, we're going to increase our efforts to equip people to be fully devoted followers. 
We're going to expand our discipleship training and expect to see the fruit borne out as people live out the gospel in their daily, daily lives. So here is our strategic statement. The mission does not change. That is still absolutely true. We, that's still the ultimate goal. But our strategic statement going forward for a season is this. We will enrich weekend services to allow the congregation to understand and experience the gospel, the firm truth, and the relevant grace. Enrich weekend services to allow the congregation to understand and experience the gospel, the firm truth, and the relevant grace. When we understand and experience the gospel, it becomes more real to us. It lights that fire that sometimes goes out because we get stale. It boosts our motivation to become disciples. So we're going to focus on providing a variety of opportunities for people to fuel up. And not everyone fuels up at the same rate or the same method. We get that, and we're going to try to accommodate. Some people are fueled more by singing worship songs than by listening to a preacher. Some people would rather hear a testimony than a sermon. Others are fueled more by the complexity of the creation than by a solid theological argument. So we need to be open to trying new ideas. We need to provide a variety of methods for people to grow towards Christ-likeness. There are different kinds of learners, and we need to provide an atmosphere that provides different teaching styles for different learners. So not everything will be for everyone. We get that. But if we foster an environment where people understand and experience both sides of the gospel coin, the firm truth and the relevant grace, then they will be compelled to spend the rest of their week exuding God's love to everyone around them. I love that word compelled. It's a scriptural word and it means you just can't help it. Paul said, I am compelled to preach the gospel. Even when I'm in chains or in prison or getting beaten or getting shipwrecked, I have to. I cannot do otherwise. And when we're on fire for God, we are compelled to live for him. Let me be clear. We are not excluding other vital areas. We're not going to stop inviting people. We're not going to dismantle life groups. Remnant youth ministry and the college ministry don't have their primary gatherings during weekend services, but we are not ignoring them. In fact, we intend to explore more ways to increase those students' initiative to grow in Christ. I mean, after all, if weekend services are fueling people's desire and initiative to grow, then remnant and college ministry will be enhanced, not diminished. Students will want more of what they get here in those places and in those ministries. And we will all want to be in life groups because we'll just want more of this. And we'll all want to serve because we just have to share with somebody else and love other people in that way. And we'll all want to invite people because we just got to tell them about it. And we'll all want to pray. We are not ignoring any of those things. We, are, we think these, those will be boosted by what we do in our weekend services. So we have some ideas about some things we might try. Some will work, some might not. We have to be willing to kind of test fire a couple things, if you will. We need to find out what the best ideas are through hearing ideas and through trial and error. So just a couple of examples, some really just quick things that we're, that we're already starting to think about. First, we're going to ensure that there's a balance of preaching the truth of the gospel and preaching the grace that the gospel offers. 
People are moved to action by experiencing grace often more than by hearing truth. That one's mostly on me. (laughs) I know that my teaching style definitely leads towards biblical truth. No one loves a good lesson in context more than me or a good history. And you're all laughing because you know it's true, right? (laughs) And that's not wrong. Theological arguments and theological truth are transforming, but so is grace. And I know that I need to grow in my skill set to teach more in the area of grace. So I am personally committed to finding a more balanced approach, a more balanced ratio, and growing in my teaching skill set. And the crowd goes wild. No. Secondly, again, just ideas, just ideas at this point. We're going to provide action steps during every sermon, remembering that there are different types of learners on different parts of the spiritual journey. Some people are far from God, and they, they need a good visual or a, a good scripture to, to grab onto this week. Some people are, have crossed the line of faith, and they need another method for growth and challenge, that sort of thing. Now, we've been more conscious of this lately. Hopefully, you've, you've already noticed this. The 21 days of prayer that we just came through definitely had action steps every single day. Recently, Darcy and Michelle have, have spoken, and they've given strong recommendations about very helpful books in the subject areas that they taught about. We've handed out guides about fasting and prayer and our identity in Christ recently. And we're going to keep thinking of different types of action steps going forward. Every week when you leave here, you should have an action step or two or ten. Next, we're going to consider how to provide lab experiences that teach us how to live out the gospel in obedient action. We've discussed all kinds of things in this area. We don't know what's going to happen. We're going to continue talking about it and hear from you. We've discussed ideas like serving Sundays, where we come in, we sing some songs of worship, we pray, and then we go out to the community and we do stuff. We go out and we pack lunches for people and take them to the park. We make quilts. We go on prayer walks. We deliver mattresses together. All these different things that we can do. We'll serve at food pantries, whatever it is. We, we can look into all kinds of options. Another idea, we've, we've had some ideas about how to increase the potential for authentic, transparent fellowship. Not just the packers and the weather. That's fine. But that's not deep, authentic fellowship. Excuse me. Those are just a few of the ideas we've thrown around. And we know the best ideas are out there. You have the best ideas. So as you think about how we can enrich weekend services to allow the congregation to understand and experience the gospel, the firm truth and the relevant grace, you will come up with ideas better than these, and we need to hear them. We are committed to hearing your ideas and suggestions. We'll try some, and we'll evaluate them. Some will Keep going because they're awesome. Some won't work, and that's okay. But we are committed to frequent communication with the congregation about how things are going. So in that vein, I'm announcing in two weeks from from today, basically at 10.15 or so in two weeks, we will have a brainstorming session in this room between services. Anyone who wants to come into this room, go downstairs, get your food, come back up, and we will have a time where we just listen to ideas. Kind of the no idea is a bad idea. We're just going to throw things up, that you, the ideas that you have, and see what sticks. 
But whether you can make it to that or not in two weeks or whether you want to or not, that's fine. But please, feel free. You are always welcome to talk to an overseer, a staff member, or a ministry leader about your ideas. So just to remind ourselves, let's go back to that graphic we had earlier. Aren't these graphics awesome, by the way? These are awesome. Tim Burkhalter does our graphics for us. He just nailed this. Just awesome stuff. Um, he's not here this morning, probably second service. But if you see him, it's his birthday. So... Um, but it takes fuel, it takes astronauts to, to reach an objective. It takes the group display to see how we're doing. It takes mission control to make things happen. And it takes understanding when the mission is accomplished to know when success is reached. When NASA starts a mission, the entire team works together to accomplish every objective along the pathway to success. So now let's apply this same illustration and just change the labels as we're going to use this going forward with our 2020 vision. Astronauts become maturing believers. Maturing believers who are on the journey to becoming disciples. And we are all called to maturity. So in a way, we're all astronauts in this illustration. There you go. You are now qualified to be an astronaut. (laughs) Next, we said weekend services are the fuel that will help us get there. Just like the astronauts needed a lot of energy to get to the moon, our weekend services will provide a lot of energy for people to grow. Not ignoring the other things, rather boosting the other things that we're doing. And we have one objective, one objective towards mission success. Back in the 60s, one objective was reaching the moon. But that wasn't the end goal. And one objective for us, towards the success for us, is helping people to understand and experience the gospel. It's important, really important. We're staking a lot on it, but it's not the end goal. It's not the end goal. Next, we need to have measurable results. I like that word better than group display. I think we did a better job, honestly, coming up with a word for that. As we strive for our objective, we have to measure progress. Otherwise, we'll never know if we're on the right trajectory. And we could do a lot of good stuff, but still completely miss the target. So we will have very specific, measurable markers along the way. Just one example, just just so you know what I'm talking about here. We're going to track how many Sundays do we give tangible action steps in the messages so we know when people go home they have something to do. And then we'll know how well we're doing in that, obje- in that part of the objective. How, how we're doing with meeting that standard. And we'll measure as much as we can to track. Next, mission control becomes ministry teams and ministry leaders. That's where the decisions will be made, where initiatives will get started. And just like in mission control, everyone is going to have to do their part to make this succeed. This is not just the staff. This is not just the leaders. This is not just your life group leader. This is not just your ministry leader. This is everyone. We all need to unite under one goal. We've got to pay attention to the measurable results and make adjustments as needed. At NASA, the entire team knew they had accomplished the goal, accomplished the mission, 
when the parachutes dis- dis- deployed and the spaceship landed in the ocean, everyone celebrated because everyone contributed. All 400,000 of them, really the entire nation. At Cornerstone, we have one goal. And we will know we've accomplished the mission when disciples are being made. Everyone will celebrate because everyone will have contributed. Not when weekend services are just out of this world, amazingly wonderful. Yes, that's, that'd be awesome. That's not the goal. The goal is making disciples. So when we put it all together, we get an illustration of what it's going to take to achieve our goals. Now, all illustrations have their limits. I don't want to push this one too far. But there is a unique feature that distinguishes this illustration from a space flight. And that is, we all have two seats in this illustration. You see them? We are all astronauts. We are all maturing believers. And we are all in mission control. We are all to be on ministry teams. There's not one single person here who has fully achieved mission success. We're all a work in progress trying to obediently make disciples. So we all contribute to the cause by being in mission control. And we all benefit from the cause by being a maturing believer. Mission success at Cornerstone is not defined by getting people to understand and experience the gospel any more than mission success at NASA was defined as landing on the moon in the 1960s. Yes, it would have been a great achievement, had never been done before. But if they hadn't gotten home, wouldn't have reached the goal. Would not have accomplished the mission that was set out for them. Mission success at Cornerstone is making disciples. Understanding and experience the gospel, we think is going to be a wonderful, wonderful thing, and we're excited about it. But it's simply a means to an end. It's one of the ways we all know that we are on the way to mission success. Next week, in the second part of this series, we'll look at this with more detail, and we'll try to envision our own personal pieces in this strategic plan. Certainly, ask questions in the meantime if you have them. Ask an overseer. Ask, my, ask me, another staff person. Our ministry leaders have heard about this, and they're on board, and they're, they're, they're kind of learning and growing, and they're understanding how this is going to happen, and they have great ideas too. So talk to them as well. Give them your ideas. They can pass them along. We're excited about this. We look forward to how we're going to enrich weekend services to allow people to understand and experience the gospel the, full tr- the firm truth and the relevant grace. Let's join our hearts in prayer. God, we do thank you for giving us this, this 